You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. All right, so I would not be the first to say uh, that um, in the United States, politics has become a kind of religion. Shadi Hamid argued in a great piece in The Atlantic um, earlier in April that as religious faith has declined statistically in the US, something like religious fervor has been channeled into politics and into political parties. Devotion reserved once for kind of the most sort of sacred, holy places in our life has been transferred to sort of sacralize politics, and I could go on and on about what that actually practically looks like. There's a lot there. But I want to kind of ask, why does that work so well, right? Why do we buy that? And part of it is that what is promised by both political parties, what is promised by um, politicians running for office, is what touches on kind of what we most long for as human beings. It's really clear if you watch like convention, the party conventions every few years, the kinds of things they promise touch on our hunger for justice, for security and safety, for freedom, for dignity, for order, for equality, for human flourishing. These are the sorts of promises that are made and they, they get to what the human heart thirsts for, for our longing for human flourishing, for the things that we are made for. And these are all good things. Part of us indelibly, we cannot, whoever you are, we can't shake a longing for goodness, for peace, for joy, for hope, for beauty. We are longing for the kingdom of God, for the kingdom to come. And good and just politics, which I know that a lot of our politics are not good and just, but kind of in their ideal form, good and just politics um, can't bring the kingdom of God, but they can do a modicum of good on earth. They can make a difference. So politicians speak to our soul's longing But there is something that you won't find in either party's platform. There's something that you will probably never hear a politician, in the United States at least, get, or probably anywhere in the world, promise as part of their campaign that if they did, they probably wouldn't get elected. And that is suffering. Come and die will not be a winning slogan of either political party in America, right? That's like we have, you know, change you can believe in, and it's never gonna be like, whatever, Republicans come and die, right? Or Democrats come and die. And we've grown really used, as as Americans, we've grown really used to politicians, um, to corporations, to influencers, to other leaders kind of selling themselves to us, turning us into consumers. And so we have learned to approach life 
and kind of everyone in life and God himself mainly concerned with the question, so what's, what's in this for me? And right before our passage today uh, that we read in Matthew, Peter has this kind of incredible insight and he says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Like he gets it, he gets this flash of truth. And Jesus said, yes, this wasn't revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. It's this revelation of who Jesus says that he is the Messiah. Peter got it in a way that very few people did. He recognizes Christ's Messiahship, but in Peter's imagination, that looked a very particular way. The Messiah would bring the kingdom of God. He would set things right on earth. He would bring order and freedom and peace. He would end the oppression of God's people. And Peter names this. And then from that very moment, when Christ, when Jesus is proclaimed as the Messiah, from that moment, Jesus begins to talk about how he will suffer and die. And Peter says, no, this is not the way this is supposed to work. This isn't what the Messiah is. The Messiah doesn't die a criminal's death on a cross. You can almost hear him saying like, Jesus, this is very poor marketing. This is very poor campaign strategy. This is not who you are supposed to be. And Peter objects because God isn't what he wants God to be, and he's remaking God, like PR spin. And I wonder, I wonder if we ever do that, right? If I ever do that. Peter wanted good things, to be clear. He wanted the kingdom. He wanted oppression to cease. He wanted freedom. He wanted shalom. But Peter wanted the kingdom without a cross. And this is always what the world wants. The world longs for the kingdom without a cross. In Matthew 4, eight through nine, Satan tempts Jesus. I sort of, part of the reason I'm talking about this passage is because you know, I'm Anglican and it's Lent. And so we really dwell right now on the cross and particularly the temptation of Jesus. Satan tempts Jesus with this very thing. In the wilderness, the enemy says to Jesus, all this I will give to you, and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world, and he says, if, if you will but bow down and worship me. Jesus is the reigning king of the world. He is king of kings. But with his authority came ultimate vulnerability. With his glory came suffering. And Satan's temptation was to say that you can have everything due to you, everything owed to you. You can have all the power that you rightly deserve. You can bring the kingdom of God and you don't have to suffer. You don't have to die. And here Peter, the one on whom Jesus would build his church, this great man of faith, this holy man, has the same mindset as the devil, as the tempter. 
He believed the world's values and it put him in league with the enemy. So it's not wrong to want a life of safety or goodness or freedom. It's not wrong, of course, to want the oppressed to be set free. Your longing for good things, your longing for the kingdom is from God and we should name that and be honest about that. But if we think that that comes from our own power, from getting our lives kind of engineered correctly, and if we live our life to avoid suffering and risk, we simply cannot value the things of God. It's not, and it's important to note this, it's not that God's some kind of abusive boyfriend or spouse where you kind of have to put up with the bad stuff from God because of these like promises of good things to come. God doesn't like sick suffering on us with, with a, some sort of, um, in some kind of sadistic or controlling way. God doesn't want suffering or enjoy suffering. God wants to give us joy, to give us love. Jesus brings the kingdom on earth. Over and over again, he proclaims the coming of the kingdom. But it's the truth of the universe, of the way that um, the kingdom is shaped, that you simply cannot get to resurrection except through the cross. The, the, the door to the kingdom by necessity is always cruciform. It's always shaped as a cross. And the only way we can sort of diminish ourselves enough to fit into the kingdom of God is through death. And Jesus here takes Peter's heart very seriously. And I want you to note that it is kind of God to not treat us as consumers. It is kind of God to humanize us, to make us human and not just consumers. So he looks at Peter's heart and he takes him seriously. And he speaks to Satan here as Peter, and he speaks to Peter as Satan. He says, get behind me. And this is an interesting phrase, and it could mean lots of things, but one thing that it could mean is that rabbis or teachers at the time had their disciples or apprentices like literally walk behind them as a show of respect. And Jesus didn't, as far as we know, typically do this, but Jesus is literally kind of putting Peter in his place here. He's reminding Peter, you are not the rabbi here. You don't teach me what messiahship looks like. I teach you what kind of messiah I am. Peter, you don't know what you're talking about. I am not a messiah that comes through gaining status or wealth or power like a politician. I am a messiah that suffers and dies. In fact, I bring the kingdom through death. In literature, this is called a reversal, right? It's a moment that the plot twists. It's when the thing that you least expect comes to pass. Jesus is revealed as the Messiah that these people have waited for for generation after generation to set things right to end their oppression, to establish the power of Israel. And as soon as that's revealed, he promises suffering and death. And you can almost hear them ask, what 
good as a Messiah if he isn't going to do what we want him to do, right? If this was a democracy, he'd be voted out. He'd be recalled. But it's not a democracy, thanks be to God. This is the king establishing his kingdom. The cross is not incidental to the mission of Jesus. It's central. And then he does this radical thing and he calls his disciples also to a cross. He calls his disciples to suffer. He says, in effect, if the rabbi is going to suffer and die, he expects no less from his students. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Jesus here means this literally, right? He actually means that if they want to follow Jesus, they must be willing to die. And the people that he's speaking to, his disciples, almost all of them eventually do literally die as martyrs for their devotion to Jesus. So what does this mean for us? Some of us may literally die, but most of us in America right now may not. So what does this mean for us, this passage? One thing, first thing, is we need to be really skeptical of any person any pastor, anyone who kind of promises God's glory or God's coming kingdom, if that does not entail a cross. Some sort of suffering, and not just suffering for you, but for them as well, for the person promising it. The way of power promises that we can experience no weakness, and it's a lie. There are religious people on the theological and political left, and there are religious people on the theological and political right that want to use God and use the language of Jesus to shore up power for a particular political party, or for America, or for our own tribe, or our own kind of ideology, for our friends for our institution, for their personal brand. And that is not the kind of Messiah that Jesus is. Jesus comes and shows himself in weakness. We often look for leadership and strength, and Jesus shows up in weakness, and we miss it. We miss what God is doing. His call is always to vulnerability, to meekness, to service, to lay down our lives for the sake of others. He is not found often among the powerful, but among the least of these. Anytime we want power without weakness, without vulnerability, Anytime we want a kingdom without a cross, we need to let ourselves be rebuked by Jesus, just as Peter was, and kind of relearn what kind of Messiah he is. I'll just be honest that all the time, I still trip up on this, and I wanna tell God what his Messiahship should look like. 
I want to tell God what salvation should look like. And I want him to get on board with what I know or think I know of, of what redeeming the world should look like. And constantly, God is humbling me, rebuking me, and telling me, no, Tish, I teach you what the kingdom of God looks like. I teach you what salvation looks like. All right, second, if we wanna follow Jesus, we must be willing to die. You must be willing to suffer. I want to give you no false campaign promises because Jesus didn't. And again, it's his kindness that he didn't pander. He let people walk away from him. Jesus longs, the scripture's clear, God longs that none should perish. But God's not afraid of us. God's not out there trying to like convince us that he's worthy of worship. He doesn't give false campaign promises and we should not either. He didn't try to sell himself to get our vote. He makes it really clear here, do not come to Jesus unless you want to surrender your life and everything in it to him. Your hopes, your dreams, your money, your safety, your power, your success, your sexuality, your relationships, your politics, your children, your life. But what if that sounds really hard or intimidating? If it doesn't sound hard or intimidating, then you're either not taking that seriously enough or you're vastly overinflating your own competence and your own holiness. This is hard and intimidating. It should sound hard and intimidating. We sometimes can sort of talk about conversion like it's an instant thing, right? Especially if you're from sort of an evangelical background that is kind of one and done. We give our hearts to Jesus or accept Jesus and we're converted, we're sanctified, it's done. But we need to think of the Christian life as kind of a continual process of conversion that we're giving our lives to Jesus day by day. There's sort of more and more of our heart, more territory of our lives that's converted. And this continual process of conversion is to be more and more willing to suffer for Jesus and to suffer like Jesus. Not out of duty, not out of stoicism, but because he loves us and we have been transformed by that love, that we have learned more and more what kind of very surprising Messiah he is. And we absorb his love and we taste the resurrection even now. My prayer is that we will fall so in love with who he is, that he would show us how good he is, that anything we could give, including our lives, is a small price to pay for knowing him, for walking in the kingdom of God and the freedom of that, in the goodness of that. Eugene Peterson has this quote, and honestly, I read this about every one to two weeks. I read it all the time. It's one of my very favorite quotes. Um, for people like me and you English, department people who love words and love God, this is great. But Peter says, said, Jesus is the dictionary 
in which we look up the meaning of words. When we look up the glory in Jesus, we find, are we ever ready for this? We find obscurity, rejection, and humiliation, incomprehension, and misapprehension, a sacrificial life and an obedient death, the brightness of God backlighting what the world despises or ignores. That's what we're called to, the brightness of God that backlights everything the world despises or ignores. Jesus' kingship led to death. His brightness is seen in the things the world despises and ignores. He entered vulnerability and suffering and calls us to the same. And Jesus was kind to be really upfront in telling his disciples that following him was going to involve suffering. He told, he was honest with his disciples that if they wanted to follow him, they had to take up his cross, that no servant is greater than his master. And I wanna be clear, this is also the same Jesus that said that you will have abundant life, that promises rest for the weary. And, And we can ask, like, how can that be true that the same guy that calls us to a cross promises rest to the weary? How can it be true that he calls us to abundant life? But I think that we can sort of take abundant life and push it through the lens of the American dream, right? But the abundant life that Jesus calls us to is abundant in every way. It's abundant joy, more abundant joy than you'll find anywhere else. But it is abundant sorrow. It's finding rest in Jesus implies that there will be times where we feel deeply weary in following him. All of Jesus's kind of positive promises are matched by this complete honesty that he's calling us to death, that we will know grief. Jesus would probably, unless you're in a great church, a particularly mature church that, that has kind of forsaken the promises of America, Jesus would not be hired as a youth minister in your typical evangelical church. If he was interviewed and asked what his strategy with kids would be, he would, if he brought this up, he would say, following God is torture, because that's what the cross is. We can so sanitize it, but when he says, I'm calling you to cross, what that would have been heard as is I'm calling you to torture. And how would that fare in your typical American youth group? I'm gonna call these kids to torture. Martin Luther really famously makes this distinction between the theology of the cross and the theology of glory. In a theology of glory, God shows that he's trustworthy by doling out pleasure and prosperity and freedom from suffering for those who are righteous or holy enough. But a theology of the cross discovers God hidden in suffering. A theology of glory has the same logic of every empire, including our own, that power and money and pleasure are the stuff of greatness. A theology of the cross tells us that the kingdom of God and God himself is topsy-turvy, that everything is upside down, that God is most interested in the weak, and that he's most present in the darkest moments of our life. Jesus, not consumerism, not Instagram, 
not the American dream, should define what our idea of the abundant life looks like. Do you want to see the abundant life? Do you want to know what that looks like? Look at the life of Jesus. He was single, never married. He was in poverty. He died young and misunderstood. And apparently, he lived the most abundant life that can be promised. This is why it's so important that the resurrection actually happened, that it isn't just kind of like a nice metaphor, that Jesus truly is ascended to the right hand of the Father, that that's not just kind of a nice idea that we proclaim or, or, or sort of optimism. Christianity is either true, Jesus is alive, he is the king of kings and he is reigning, or it is worse than oppressive. I write in um, my latest book, Prayer in the Night, when our lives are wrapped round with privilege and comfort and luxury, some can muse about the value of spirituality or religious community kind of religious consumerism, which we find all the time now, inside and outside of the church. And we can talk about how that's valuable and important, whether or not what we believe is strictly speaking true. But when we're in the context of suffering and loss, even suffering that comes from our conviction or belief itself, then if there is not a resurrection, a world to come, we are wasting a lot of pain. It's when we encounter the hard reality of adversity that it makes sense that Paul says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. It's ride or die. God is not bending over backwards to kind of win our vote. He's not after our approval, but he is after our life. He's after our heart. He's after that part of you that is most you because he finds it beloved. And he wants us to let ourselves learn. He wants to teach us what kind of Messiah he is. If Jesus is truly alive, then any suffering in your life is transformed into a vehicle to escort you into the presence of God. We meet God in the cross and suffering, and God brings resurrection. Two weeks ago, for my New York Times newsletter, I interviewed Tim Keller. He's amazing, and um, he's not, he has pancreatic cancer. He was told two years ago that he probably didn't have more than a year to live, so we're going on a borrowed year now. And he's, he was talking about this, and I was interviewing him. And by the way, this is exclusive content because this hasn't been published yet, so you guys are the first to hear this. <laughs> and he said, he, I was asking him about how, how dying, how cancer has connected him with God in new ways. And he said, just me and him with this deep vulnerability and honesty. He said, when I suffer any kind of suffering, including cancer, if I respond to it faithfully, looking to God in faith, all that suffering does is drive me like a nail more into God's love. That he gets deeper and deeper into God's love. And honestly, I can tell you that there was nothing but joy 
coming from him. We are celebrating Easter in a couple weeks, two weeks. And this is our only hope, but it is a deep hope. It is the hope that we need. But here in Lent, don't skip too quickly to the resurrection. Look to Jesus' cross and recall that you too will be called to a cross. And it will feel like death. It won't feel spiritual or triumphant. It will feel like, where are you, God? And that is the way of the kingdom. This is the way of resurrection. This is the Christian life. This is the abundant life. And I want to call you this morning to be honest with God about that. It says, above your holiness unto the Lord, right? And that's a great goal. But I think that sometimes we can, we can take that to mean that we need to present our best face to Jesus and to our Christian community. The calling of holiness is to be really honest with God about our doubt, about our anger, about our frustration, about the ways we're struggling, and to be honest with each other about that as well. I think as I have grown in the Christian life, I'm, I have grown in being more honest with God about the ways I'm mad and disappointed and confused. And I just wanna say, if you're already there, if you feel like right now you are in the middle of facing a cross and you feel like you can barely hold on, that Jesus is with you and in fact he beat you there, he beat you to the cross. He didn't call his followers to anything that he would not take up himself. But because of that, any suffering that we encounter he beats us there. He's waiting for us there. He's waiting to meet us in our sufferings. He was crushed for our sake. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. He was single and lonely and abandoned by his friends. He was impoverished. He was ashamed. He was shamed publicly. He was misunderstood. He was tortured. He was put to death. And his was the abundant life. He knows whatever road you are walking now. So as we approach the end of Lent, Good Friday, and Easter, let us meditate, let us look at the cross so that our suffering can be transformed and drive us more deeply into the love of God. That our suffering could become like a, a hammer that just drives us like a nail more deeply into the love of God. Jesus wants abundant life for you, but let him, the Messiah, teach you what abundant life looks like. Don't let politics teach you what abundant life looks like. Don't let consumerism or social media teach you what abundant life looks like. Don't let the stock market or money or fame teach you what the abundant life looks like. Look to Jesus and see what kind of Messiah he is and what kind of life he promises.